Two little girls in 1973 St. Louis are at the heart of Marissa Silver's latest novel, The Mysteries. Miggy is an unfiltered, imaginative kid who can't be reined in. Ellen is polite and cautious, but she's also loyal to Miggy and her boisterousness. The parents of these girls are living in an unstable and tense time. There's a recession and Watergate simmers on front pages and televisions. These events add to festering quiet tensions from these already fractured relationships. And then a tragedy strikes, and all involved must try to find a way through. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. I spoke to Marissa Silver about her novel, The Mysteries. I'm going to start with the title. I think The Mysteries is a kind of a perfect title for any work of fiction about children (laughs) Um, (laughs) and married people. Um, yeah, maybe a good title for just about anything. I it, don't know. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's a great title. But I think children, especially like Miggy and Ellen. Um, so I, I just want to say that first. But I wonder if you, if you would read the opening of the book for us. Okay. So this is the first chapter of the mysteries. They are running. There is no reason to go slow. They run out of Miggy's bedroom, down the stairs, through the living room, skipping over the albums that lie scattered across the floor. Miggy nimbly avoids Brubeck, Evans, and Monk, but she wants to crush them too, to hear the satisfying snap of the records under her keds, to feel the momentary pulse of destruction. No, her mind says. Why not? Because no, her mother would say sharply. Jean's reactions are one part anger and two parts fear. The fault between those two feelings align Miggy's senses in the quaver of misgiving that passes across her mother's face when she wants to reprimand her daughter. It is a line that Miggy can't resist treading, the same way she must trouble a loose tooth, the sharp pain and dull tickle equally irresistible. Who are you, her mother asked after Miggy shattered the back window of the station wagon with a rock or drew a butterfly on the living room rug because a rock so dense in the hand must be flung and a magic marker its tip as wet as a dog's nose must draw. I am Miggy, she said, but of course her mother knew that. The words mother and father don't exist without the word Miggy. She is the reason for them. I am Miggy, she declares now as she dances around the albums, imagining them as lily pads, imagining herself as a fairy so light she can land on the water between the pads and not drown. Or maybe the albums are the water and the space between are leaves the size of elephant feet, because everything is always itself and the inside out of itself. A shirt, a lie, vomit, a dream. I am Ellen, Ellen says more quietly. Because this is not her house. These are not her father's records. Those are not her parents' empty tumblers sitting on the coffee table where water rings and cigarette burn marks are branded into the wood. Will you stop just for one minute, Jean always says. But even when Miggy tries as hard as she can to stand still, something inside her sparks like the telephone wire that whipped across the street during last winter's ice storm, spitting electricity into the frigid air. She bursts with a desire to move, to speak, to sing, because there is so much, there is so much all the time that even if she could spread her arms wider than the universe, she could still not hold it all. There are the mosquito bites that she is not supposed to scratch. There are starbursts of blood on her arms and shins because she can't help it. There is knowing what she is supposed to do and not doing it, and knowing how she is supposed to behave and misbehaving. 
It makes her skin prickle. It makes her choose a great popsicle, but then wish she'd chosen red so that her lips would be painted in defiance of her mother, who says that makeup is not for children. Her rage at the injustice overcomes her. She is mad at the popsicles and mad at her mother, who always says, choose one. But how and why? You know, thank you so much for reading that. In this particular excerpt, we see a world, the, the world of these girls and the ways each of them moves through the space. And you show such sharp detail, such specific details about each girl. And then we can compare them just in that one excerpt that you read, that one section that you read. Right off the bat, we know so much about them, their dynamic with each other of their relationship and also about Jean about Maggie's mom and it just puts me in the mind of the you know of the six or the seven year old of the looking at the records as the lily pads you know the way that we used to notice dust motes when we were little kids and now we don't even pay any attention to them um I just I just love that opening scene and I'm so glad you shared it because it really crystallizes so much and encapsulates so much about this book. Um, I like the ways that even while we understand that Ellen is sort of in Maggie's shadow in the book, we also get to see the ways that she emerges from that place and her character is just as memorable for these other reasons. I mean, I think there's a lot of Maggie's in the world. I've known my share of Maggie's, but I think I'm an Ellen, and I I know so many Ellens, and sometimes the quiet Ellens don't get noticed, but there's so much going on underneath the surface. Yeah, I appreciate that you said that. I mean, Miggy is certainly a bright flame. She's a powerful, kinetic, charismatic girl who sort of is shaking her fist at all the limitations that are around her life, and for a seven-year-old, there are many. And she wants more than anything to break through them, to to do and be more than she's capable of doing and being at her age. Um, Ellen is more dutiful. She's more nervous, I think. Um, But I think that the kind of kid that Miggy is, um, is really appealing to a lot of kids. She sort of is enacting um, something that they feel, but maybe aren't uh, brave enough or don't have the wherewithal in their personalities to enact it. And those kinds of friends, the kind of friends Miggy is, um, they're marvelous and they're a little bit dangerous, right? They, they sort of pull you into areas that your conscience might be telling you not to, not to go. Um, but I love the dynamic between the two girls, um, po- po- probably mostly because I think all relationships, all friendships have an element of power in them, um, child friendships and also adult friendships. And I think that one of the things I wanted to write about was how that power is established. And then as you say, how it begins to shift um, when Ellen begins to come into her own and what that does to Mickey and how it destabilizes Mickey, which leads to sort of a, a cataclysmic moment in the book. Yes. Um, and I won't spoil that at all during this interview, but but yes, exactly that. Have readers asked you about Mickey um, and, and whether or not she might be on the autism spectrum or or that she might perhaps today be diagnosed with ADHD. I mean, she's such a rich and complex character, but I wonder about Miggy as someone in 1973 at a time when children actually were summarily put on Ritalin if they acted out, right, just without a real diagnosis. Um, but I feel like like Miggy, that I wonder if, if readers have questioned um, 
you know, what what is this? What's Miggy's story? Is there another story that's sort of unspoken because it is set in 1973, or does it even matter? Well, that's the that's the great question. What you just said does it even matter? I mean, I, yes, in fact, I mean, she certainly is not autistic, but she might be considered nowadays. She might be um, diagnosed with ADHD. But I think that um, I tried really hard to write this from the social point of view of a particular time, in this case, 1973, where, yeah, a lot of kids were put on Ritalin, but um, a lot of kids were not. And and behaviors were not in the same way that they are now um, pathologized in the same way. I think kids were difficult or they were they were considered to be bad or they got in trouble and they were brought to the principal's office a lot. But I don't think that that kids were medicalized the same way they are now. So I tried to really hew towards um, what was going on in 1973. Do I think Miggy has ADHD? No, not in the least. I think Miggy is an alive, sparking person with a personality and with a kind of verve and a vigor and an unruliness. But I don't necessarily think that's a medical problem. I think that's a personality. Oh, she's just so endearing. But I, but yeah, just a firecracker. But I, I did wonder about that. And I'm, so I'm glad you've uh, you've shared that with us about her. Because yeah, I think in most of the scenes with Miggy, that's exactly what we're getting. She, she just is, uh, um, you know, her own person and a force. And, and that should be enough. And I just think she's a, a, a very smart girl, even though she doesn't always feel like a smart girl. So she's a very complicated character in her own way, in the same way that, that Ellen is a complicated character in her own way. I just I just love the interplay between the two girls. And it is very reminiscent of, as you say, these, uh, you know, these power dynamics and friendships between girls. Oh, yeah. Like this really put me in that mind set of <laughs> like, uh, like those grades and, uh, and on. I mean, I think even into high school. Um, so well, one thing about friendships, especially between young girls, is that to me they're sort of um, testing out almost every emotion. You know, that they're they are testing out emotions of passion and love and hate and rejection and then reclaiming and all the kinds of emotions that they might um, enact later in their lives in more nuanced ways with friends or lovers. They kind of enact with each other. I mean, you it, you know, there's a there's a kind of passionate quality to the relationship, especially between girls at that age that's almost shocking in its Mm. kind of complexity and its emotional complexity oh i agree and and it's a it's uh, it's very realistic i i think um so i just found that to be a, a very resonant and very rich thing um so this is set in 1973 miggy and ellen are seven years old maybe born around 1966 that's the year i was born i i was seven years old in 1973 so i'm absolutely impressed (laughs) with the ways that you painted this world and I was seven in a city on the Texas-Mexico border and these girls are in St. Louis so wow it's just so interesting what you know what sort of translates and and just rings so so true and so resonant I just feel like you nailed it Um, well thank you and you know what's interesting about what you say is that I think that when, you know, when you write, you try to be as specific as possible to the world and the moment and the place and the time that you're writing. And the, and, and in a kind of um, ironic way, uh, the, the more specific you are, the more resonant or universal something feels. 
I think it's when you are less, when you're more general, when you're when you're not nailing something to a, a, a its specific moment that that it doesn't feel alive to readers and they don't recognize it. But the more particular you are, in a, in an odd inverse way, it becomes more resonant. I totally, I totally get that. I mean, I was reading this novel and I'd come to a like the um, the mention of Hydrox. And I, I would sort of like look up from the book and look around the room and be like, oh my gosh. And there was nobody to, to share it with. Like I had to text my sister and tell her, and tell her about it. But just those moments, I, that, it's just priceless. Um, and the details of the setting um, bring forth these elements that are, as you say, universally understood. But then there are also elements that are very specific to St. Louis. Um, how did you settle on St. Louis for the setting? And, and even 1973 versus, say, I don't know, 2019, right? So St. Louis in 1973, very specific. Well, I think that in terms of the time, this is 1973 of it all, I'm a little bit older than you are, but that was kind of my childhood too. And so maybe in some ways I was just kind of using the sense memories of my own childhood to depict this world. And that felt like you know, sometimes you make choices as a writer and it's there's not much analysis going on it just feels right mm-hmm. that's not always the most satisfying answer to a, a question but it just felt like this is 19 or in the early 70s it's not a contemporary story um and i think that in st louis i grew up i spent my early years in the midwest in ohio and st louis is a town that i have spent an enormous amount of time in because my husband is from there and so um i've i've visited many, many times, explored it. And it's a city that really fascinates me. I love its history. I love the look of it. I love the feelings that I have when I'm there that I was able to source for the all the different characters. So it was just, a, it's a city that felt really rich to me. And in terms of um, the 73 of it all, a lot was going on in this country in 1973. Um, there was the, the kind of slow grinding down of the Vietnam War and the sort of malaise, I think, that came after that, um, you know, there was there once it was over and then the, the sheer, you know, um, kind of uselessness of all the the lost lives. I think that really was coming home to roost and it was and it left people with a kind of it left the country in a kind of weird depressed depression in a certain way, um, combined with the fact that at that moment in time, um, Watergate was happening. And so, you know, the very president who had done so much in that war was um, being deposed and had, you know was was a crook and people were sort of losing heart in government if they hadn't already and um, and the other thing that happened in that time was that there was a recession there was a recession in the summer of 1973 there were gas lines you know I remember clearly you know we stopped eating meat we you know were definitely tightening our our belt and um, so I felt like the things that were going on in the country, provided a kind of itchy tension that felt like a good backdrop for what was going on in the story that you know the people the adults in this story especially are all um kind of ambivalent in certain ways about the choices that they've made for their lives and it felt like the backdrop of this history created that that kind of destabilizing discomfort that i think is expressed in a lot of the adult relationships I I agree. I I did consider that that there was there's so much in the background that really ramps up the tension. I I love the the multidimensional um, ways that you paint every single character here. 
one might look at this book and say, oh, it's about the two girls, but but really there's not a single character in here that's not that fully formed and fleshed out and realized everyone with his or her own proclivities. This one loves jazz and makes the um, the first dollar sale at the store every day without fail as a matter of ritual. This one smokes and teaches dance um, and could be making more money doing something else, but doesn't. And there's the, all of this tension between them, uh, Julian and Jean. Celeste is really given to low moods and maybe there's some postpartum depression. Um, William is in love with a woman who runs so counter to his, you know, cookie cutter sisters in his own family. They are each so rich and so memorable. And that goes to the heart of another feature of the book I appreciate, which is the same differences that we're sort of looking at with the girls. And we're sort of looking at conflict and tension between the husbands and wives and even between the mothers, right? It's so realistic. We want our children to fit in even as we're all so different as parents or even as parents in our marriages, right? Uh, as spouses in our marriages. I remember considering that fact over and again when my daughter was very young, but I never articulated it and certainly never saw it drawn so clearly in a book. This idea that um, I'm looking at my daughter, I want my daughter to fit in, and it means that I fit in too. And otherwise, there's all of these tensions. But there's just yeah. these I characters. Think that, um, I appreciate your read. You, you read. you read the book so beautifully. I mean, one of the reasons why um i create i didn't just focus on the girls but i it's because the um the girls don't exist as that as that line says without the parents they are utterly they're formed by their parents in as even as they try to establish their identity outside of them and i think that um what i wanted to write about with the adults was what i feel is true is is that the decisions that we make um, there, we have a lot of ambivalence about them a lot of the time, you know, I mean, there's sort of the, the idea that we're making good choices for our kids or we're being ideal parents, but of course we never are. And, and we make choices and then sometimes see that those choices are terrible or we behave a certain way in our life and we see the ramifications on our children. And I just think that, um, you know, I wanted to sort of draw portraits of adults and, and parents that was as complicated as I feel like, um, being a parent is. It's never um, clear. And and as many times as you think you've done something right, you've done something wrong. Um, and certainly Miggy is a difficult child to parent. Um, she creates an enormous amount of ambivalence for her parents who love her, but are utterly kind of vexed by her. Um, so I, I just, I, I felt it was exciting to write about, you know, these characters and to try to, as you say, dimensionalize them um, so deeply that they would live on the page as as real real people. I'm going to read a, a paragraph, uh, a couple of paragraphs, and then I'm going to ask you about it. So this is on page sure. 16 of the novel. At Miggy's house, they sit on the purple couch, the heavy P volume of the World Book Encyclopedia opened across their laps. They finger their way past Papua and penicillin, words they can't yet read, and photon which Ellen is able to sound out because Sister Mary Vitalis told her that, like the dove and God, PH is F in disguise, then very slowly and then very quickly sucking in their breath against the oncoming horror, 
they turn the page, and there he is, the boy in the iron lung. They have named him Ricky, and they visit him often, compelled by their terror and terrified by their compulsion, certain that even touching the slick page of the book might cause them to catch this disease that makes you have to live in a metal tube that looks like a furnace tipped on its side. I mean, I held that P volume of the World Book Encyclopedia, <laughs> and I turned the page slow. I mean, this, how did you, how do you write these children? I mean, even the baby, Louis. But the, <laughs> I'm Louis. telling you, even the baby, I, I mean it. I really mean it. But the girls, too. I'm thinking of these scenes where the girls play. Uh, um, but also this, this particular scene, I just thought, how did she get into the mind of these? How did she get into my uh, my own mind, you know, all those years ago? Um, how did you yeah. do that? <laughs> I that's I guess how I did it was by. Um, I don't know, I, I get, you know, part of being a writer, it's a little bit like being an actor and you're kind of doing all the roles. Um, and I would be a terrible actor, but in the privacy of my <laughs> the room where I work, you know, you sort of enter into their skin and you look out through their eyes. And I certainly have memories of my own childhood and the kinds of things that I was terrified by. And um, so I think it's a combination of it, it, of just really, really knowing your character, getting inside their skin, allowing yourself to not analyze them, but feel them and then bringing those feelings to the page. So, you know, I didn't want to write from a perspective of an adult looking at a child and analyzing the child's fear. I wanted to be in the moment where they feel that fear, which is that quick turning of the page and then that gasp of, mm -hmm. oh no, this terrifying thing is there. I mean, the, the boy in the iron lung in the encyclopedia books is terrifying. And um, so, so I think that's, you know, that's the job of it in a certain way and it's certainly the job in a character-driven book which the mysteries is 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 that you have to really um sort of insert yourself into the the skin of another person and then feel everything feel what the weather feels like on their skin feel what it is like for them to taste something or to look at something or to um, source back to their memories because of an association in the present. So that that's sort of the, that's the challenge of it. And that's the fun of it. Oh, I can imagine, but not everybody can do this. I'm going to say that, but this, it was like, I, I could have cited any of a number of examples where I'm just, as you say, in that skin, the power, your powers of, of observation and memory and, and inhabiting these, uh, these young girls. I mean, it, it just took me back to those places. Um, I mean, even sitting in a car when, where I, when I don't particularly want to be in a car, right? It was just a very, very rich experience to read this and be back in, in 1973. Um, but also Celeste's uh, depression and, and her, that, that's also another thing that I feel must be very difficult to write and to inhabit that space and to do it so effectively. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just, I, I don't know how you do it, but, but it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's wonderful. <laughs> but tell me, you. tell me about the research that you did do for this book, because I know that you spent some time, there was a, the, the program in New York City. I know you mentioned it in the book. Yeah, I had a um, fellowship at the New York Public Library. It's called the Cullman Fellowship, 
where, and I spent a year working on the book there and had the resources of the library at my disposal, which was kind of like a magical year. You can imagine for mm. anybody, um, but certainly a writer to have a library at your beck and call and is incredible. So what did I, I researched, you know, I certainly did an enormous amount of research about St. Louis and about the year 1973 and about what was going on. Um, and I researched, you know, everything from, you know, Julie, Miggy's father works in a hardware store. So I needed to, you know, get get my uh, know what was going on in a hardware store, what things were stocked, what things were, you know, not stocked, and especially at that time. Um, but what the one thing I spent a lot of time doing was reading about how children have been managed in literature over time, because one of the biggest challenges in this book was finding the right tone. And, you know, you've alluded to it a little bit in terms of, um, you know, being able to sort of um, get inside the mind of the children or the adults for that matter. But I, I needed to find a tone that would make me, make Miggy and Ellen be alive on the page. And um, so I kind of wanted to think a lot about how children characters have been envisioned in literature, um, you know, over time and that, that was just a wonderful thing to study and then to sort of allow it helped me to try to figure out what i was where i was going to land with it what my you know was this a first person point of view of a little girl no i didn't go there i went i went for something that was sort of a more flexible where where we're both inside miggy's skin and sometimes we're outside of it and we're looking at her a little bit from a further more omniscient point of view but those sorts of choices for um for me, at least, I mean, I can't really write a book until I know the tone, until I can hear it. It's almost like a music. And so doing a lot of that, that studying about the different ways in which children were conceived of and written throughout um, history was a wonderful way for me to kind of establish where I wanted to be narratively in terms of my characters. Well, I want to say two things. So I really appreciate what you said before earlier on in our discussion about Miggy just Miggy's just Miggy and we don't have to as you said medicalize uh the issue with her. And I can think back to elementary school or middle school and there was always that that one girl that I was really afraid of and nobody really knew quite what was up with her and and, and that was it, you know, she was just to be avoided. And that was sometimes the worst of it for us. You know, that that fear of, of you know, is that girl going to try to beat me up or take my lunch or, or whatever? But the thing is that in our childhoods, terrible things do happen. Terrible, ter really terrible things do happen. So we can look at uh, a story about two girls, two young girls, and see what for us might seem very idyllic and nostalgic and pure and innocent and not necessarily have the expectation that we're going to turn this terrible corner and, and lives will be changed. But as the summary of the novel in the Inside Front Flap tells us, a tragedy strikes. And everybody, everybody, has to grapple with these questions of of their own destiny or the questions of their own responsibility or how they're going to pick up the pieces and and move forward and I won't talk about what that tragedy is specifically in the book but it is so true that everybody who's who's 
sort of left behind has to figure out how to crawl out of the tra- that tragedy. And that's, that's what childhood is about too. And yeah, I mean, funny way the, the, it's a, a coming of age for, for the girls. It's also a coming of age for the parents. And it goes back a little to what you said about, you know, in the, in the beginning about the title, the mysteries, um, you know, it, it, it is a book about being confronted with the unanswerable questions in life. And um, what do you do with that when, when you're confronted with them? Do you try to answer them? Do you allow them to remain unanswered? I mean, they, they, are, they are not answerable. Therefore, um, you know, your attempt to answer them sometimes, you know, sends you in the wrong direction. But it's really a book about um, a, a moment in time for all these characters where they're confronted with a host of these kind of unanswerable questions. Um, and how do they how do they deal with that? How do they deal with trying to, as you say, understand fate or destiny or responsibility or um, love. Marissa Silver, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Marissa Silver is the author of The Mysteries. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Kathleen Creedon is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.